Welcome to the Trigger Warning Talk podcast, where we discuss trigger warning conversations. We cover all of these four topics that I'm about to describe under the mental health umbrella. We talk about domestic violence, human and sex trafficking, sexually based offenses, and we end every show, last few minutes, we talk about a missing person case. These missing person cases that we cover focus on black and brown men, women, and children because of the lack of media coverage that is given to those particular cases. Those missing person cases include runaways, child abductions, and kidnappings. We have a very special guest on our show today. Her name is Leslie Koval Dowling. She's a motivational speaker. She's a certified functional nutrition lifestyle practitioner, board certified through the AADP, certified as a Reiki practitioner, she has a Bachelor of Science in Business, and she is part of a company called East West Functional Training, LLC. We're going to have all her contact information listed in the description. This is audio and video, so definitely tune in. We're going to be streaming on all major platforms. I'll have not only her contact information in the description, anybody that listens to this podcast just as much as any other podcast that we do. If you are triggered, hence the name of the title, Trigger Warning Talk Podcast. At any point, if you are triggered, we have a ton of resources listed in every description for the audio and video. 911, we have the suicide hotline and website, trafficking website and hotline, domestic violence website and hotline. I added a few others. We have Alcoholics Anonymous, their number, Narcotics Anonymous, their number. Al-Anon, their number. We also added the government's number and website that lists a bunch of other mental health resources. And there is a new 911 number that's out that's going to be spread out throughout the nation coming July 16th of this year. It's called 988. That's the 911 number for mental health emergencies only. 988. That number is going to be listed in the description also. So without further ado, I want to welcome in my very special guest, my friend, Leslie Dowling. Leslie, talk to us, Queen. What's going on in your world? Because we're going, about, we're going to deep dive into this stuff. We're going to be moving along because I know you got moving people coming in and out and all of this stuff. You know, so we're just going to go right into it. Tell us about Leslie, oh, and then we'll you know, go from there. I'm, I'm not worthy. You know, you you walk the walk, and you get to that mid-age um, lifestyle, that mid midpoint, and you reflect back and you say, "Damn, you know, I've done a lot of things." And um, but but it's it's what I'm doing now that I'm so passionate about. You know, it's it's usually when kids get out there and they find their passion and they want to conquer the world. And I feel like I'm there. Like I feel that way, the way I felt 30 years ago. And, um, and it's really about getting down to helping people, empowering individuals and, um, and really being next to them in their journey in life to really have them feel empowered. And taking the time to reflect on, you know, the roadblocks, um, the, the verbal, the emotional abuses um, and the dynamics of maybe um, as a child, what they have endured, uh, which manifested in their adult life and just following that same pattern. And, and that's where, you know, 
there are ways and um, there are so many people now in this day and age to reach out to. I mean, look what you just, you just gave a wealth of information for people to reach out if, if there's a crisis in the family or if there's something going on. Um, and, and through COVID, I think that um, a lot of us, um, it resonates and it hits home when we, we realize that life is going to change and we can never get back to where we were. But what is so important and what I want to share to the world and the community is just trying to stay in that green zone, you know, and just trying to rise above things that maybe we have had um, uh, crises or tragedies um, in our family, in in people's families, um, and to just uh, try to plod through by getting the help. And there's a wealth of people out there today that are willing to reach out to the individuals um, and families that need the help. So, uh, yeah, I'm just passionate. Absolutely. You know, Leslie, when I was talking to you before and we talked about covering, because we're going to talk about your experience mm -hmm. with domestic violence, which is one of our core topics that we cover on the Trigger One and Talk podcast. We do uncensored conversations. This is adults talking to adults. So say what it is, it is what you say. Absolutely. The mic is yours. Let's start with we'll start with your first experience with the sure. Well, we'll go from I'm there. gonna back it up a little more. I came from a family who my father was a solid citizen. Um, he never spoke bad um, and negatively about people. He always told me to speak the truth, tell the truth, and um, give back to the community. Uh, and I had a feisty mom, an Italian, who was from New York that always stood her ground, was passionate about things that she did. But there was always stability in the family. So I didn't know about triggers. I didn't know about red flags until... Uh, you know, I, I started dating the man I'm married to, who was very charismatic and always the bell of the ball and the life of the party. Um, and um, unbeknownst to me, I, I never was a big drinker. Um, he used to call me the cheap date that after two drinks, I just, you know, that was it. That was my like, okay, I'm done, you know. Um, but he had um, an environment that um, they were heavy drinkers. Um, there were tendencies of um, uh, violence in, in the sense of uh, anger and rage. Um, so I guess the, the first red flag reflecting back now today was when we started dating and he would get drunk and, you know, um, he would start calling me names and say, you know, like, you're such a B.I.T., um, yada, yada. And... Um, you know, you're never fun. Like, why can't you just have fun? And and I just let it go. I'm like, oh, you know, he's drunk, whatever. That'll pass. Um, but then this pattern um, then reared its ugly head again once we started having children and the stressors in life of he started traveling a lot. And I had I was in the corporate world with a great job, but I decided to step down, take off the business hat and raise the children, uh, my three sons. And that's where I saw this whole volatile side of him. Um, and as a child, his, his mother would say, Mike has a 
a, a nervous stomach. Mikey has a nervous stomach. And I would always think, why would a child at five years of age have a nervous stomach and upset stomach and seasonal depression? And so, so that was my other kind of red flag. But it just was a pattern where he would just drink and then be very quiet and very reclusive within himself, um, not realizing that the meds he was put on for anxiety created this unapathetic, um, empathetic individual that was so detached with our communication and our relationship that I kind of just, my safety zone and the way that I thrived was just being there helicoptering around my children, having a husband that would come home. Um, he traveled a lot. Um, he would drink and then he would just be really rude to me and start screaming at me for no reason. Um, and I couldn't understand what was it that I was doing until seven years into the marriage, I put my foot down and um, he was on this med, which studies have shown Paxil after long term use can create that um, that callus, that um um, environment of someone just retreating and having no emotions and just going through processes and not being able to connect with people. And that's what was happening to him. And I think that it was that he wasn't doing this because he was intentionally wanting to hurt us, but this was pattern that he grew up in a family that was very volatile. Both parents were drinkers. Um, so his survival was to suppress go within. And as an adult, it manifested in rage and anger because he did not know how to diplomatically have a conversation to work things out where that's where I came from in my family. So I was very, I was very strong in the sense that if this weren't going to change, it was either he's out because I didn't want tape around our house someday. And my kids and I are a number that if he would snap, because he was so close at times where he would go from zero to a hundred in rage and anger for no reason. And I thought, this is not the way I want my children to grow up. I don't want them to follow the same pattern as dad. So he had a real call to Jesus awareness when I sat him down and I said, you could lose everything. You could lose your kids. You could lose your um, respectable thriving career. Or you could be behind bars if you snap. And I'm not going to let that happen. And that's when he really decided to go for real intense therapy. That come to Jesus moment, as most people determine or call it, for him, in your opinion, from what you know of your husband, how long did that conversation take to be had? It was good. Like I said, it was seven years of this back and forth of, I just, yeah, it was this so seven years. like a volcano ready to erupt. Okay. And the eruption was one day he snapped at my young boys over something so ridiculous. And he was running around with a metal vase, kicking the doors. And I, I said to myself, I took my kids and I went to my mother's house and I had a conversation with him and I said, you're going to lose us. You're going to lose everything. You're going to lose your career. And I think it was the career okay. that that is his sanity of him getting up every day, 
diving into work. You know, he plays hard, he works hard, but he was going to lose the family if he didn't really get to the root of what was really going on to stop this generational dysfunction. I like that term, generational dysfunction. What was the conversation like with your sons prior to this? Well, I was a, 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 a real fighting force and advocate for therapy. So we would go to family therapy. My husband would go, but he was very calculative and knew how to flip the switch and make it as if, you know, that he was cool, calm and collected and didn't understand why I would be so upset. So, um, but I also wanted to make sure that my children had one-on-one -on -one therapy so they could see the difference between what was healthy and what was very toxic. And we would have lengthy conversations. So he saw one figure, a parent who was very calm, diplomatic, would talk when things were upsetting and frustrating them instead of using physical force, punching, um, getting angry in that way, um, or verbally being abusive. Um, and uh, thank God, and you know, knock on wood, wherever that is, so far, my kids are 15, 20, and 22. And um, the just the years of, of going through therapy and working it through with the family, um, they really, God bless, are um, very even keeled. Um, and, you know, they saw a lot, but um, I think they realize what is right and wrong and, and how to navigate through life in a healthy uh, manner. The title of this podcast, I titled it Therapy Wise, with wise being in quotes. And the reason I titled it that is because we're talking about domestic violence and how therapy plays a part in that and how individuals, specifically in your family, dealt with therapy. You talked about just now how he knew what to say, he knew how to act, he knew how to behave. And for those of us that are mental health professionals or deal with mental health patients or clients, therapy-wise is a term that we know all too well. I know even in my family, when I was going through my marital issues with my ex-wife, she would be doing some therapy-wise conversations. Or there were things that would happen that even my daughter started learning how to do in therapy because we were going through this custody battle. Uh, I ended up having sole legal and sole physical custody of my daughter. And so in the process of her trying to get that reversed, she would have her do things in therapy to make it seem like everything was okay. And I was like, no, that's, that's not how it works. You can't just go in there faking it. If you're not going to be honest, there's no point in you being in therapy. I want to move on to the next thing. So you have this conversation with him. This awakening happens. What happens from that point? Yeah, you well, you know, unfortunately, fortunately, with individuals like this that um, are on this path, this vicious cycle, it has to get to an extreme level of me really just being so intentional, being 100%, him knowing that 
I am going to walk, that I can survive, and he would never get the children because of his um, his volatile ways, um, and um, and the fact that we spent a week away from the house. I think he was able to do some soul searching. He was alone in the house. You know, the children weren't around him, um, and as much as he loved his children, he didn't realize what an effect he was having on them. Um, and, and that's when I think he realized that he could lose not only us, but he could lose his career. And I think it scared him a bit, the fact that he realized how removed he could be and how he could just turn in a dime. And that was because of being on Paxil for 20 years. Um, and those are the, um, the, the bells and moving parts of, of how he actually came to terms with, wow, I could lose it all. Do I really want to do that? You know? Yeah. So it had to get to the extreme before he realized. Okay. You are someone who is a certified functional nutrition lifestyle practitioner. In your professional opinion, based on your living experience in your own family, how does that play a part in the prescription of Paxil that was being utilized by your husband? How does that dynamic work with you in terms of your view on sure. medication versus a more natural, holistic point of uh, medication? or at least usage in terms of more natural, holistic. Sure. I remedies. knew though, um, and I would, you know, um, sometimes you have to hear a third party or another voice of reason before you really realize that someone like me, who's gone through years of studying and practicing, um, try to share yes. with him that it could be genetic SNPs. He could have been, predisposed to this, obviously, epigenetically, and the epigenomes, they can be turned yes. on and off. That can, certain things. It was also the diet he was on. He would try to eat healthy, but he realized he has a genetic SNP, which is a methylation issue, MTHFR, which um, they're depleting Bs, folic acid, and also his body was not, not absorbing properly vitamin D, magnesium, and I would always say to him, you know, maybe look into your diet, maybe look into the vitamins, because that is a direct correlation, what I just um, brought to the table, um, uh, depression, okay? Um, also sugars, the brain fog, fatigue, um, getting the therapeutic help he needs. Um, and, and it wasn't until he went for two weeks to a very well-known facility in uh, Arizona, in January that he had further testing and he came home and he's like, you know, what you were saying about the mineral depletion, about vitamin D, like my levels are pretty low when it comes to the functional realm um, of, of the way that you speak into your blood count, uh, the blood work. Um, and, and you were right. <laughs> you know, some things you, you actually, they, they brought that to the table and they, they, you know, they really made me realize I needed to take some supplements too. 
Um, so, so I, unfortunately, there are thousands of people that are out there, thousands that fall through the cracks. Now, what happened with my husband was his, um, the doctor that prescribed the Paxil over 20 years um, was not practicing in the state of where we live. He then, it was bounced to his GP. Um, and through the GP, he was just, um, you know, he continually was taking this Paxil. Um, and then it, it wasn't until he started weaning himself off of Paxil two years ago that he started getting in touch with his emotions. He was actually like having a relationship, a wonderful, beautiful relationship with my mother, uh, which he never had. He was so disconnected with, with family. Um, and he really revealed to his three best friends what was really going on. And they were shocked because there were times that I would call his friends and say, listen, if you're going to take my husband out, just be careful, mindful with his drinking because he's just having a rough week and he's been really depressed. And they thought I was crazy. Like, he's fine. What is she talking about? And it wasn't until this past year that they actually sat me down and said, you know, I'm so sorry. I, I wasn't really listening to what you were saying. And I'm shocked. I, your, your husband knew how to hide it really well. And um, so, yeah. Because when you were making these calls to these friends, you weren't calling them saying, hey, I want you to be aware that, you know, when he drinks, I'm concerned about him mimicking a coyote ugly scene, dancing on the bar and all that stuff. You weren't talking no. about that, right? No, no, because we're very, I'm very independent and I'm very, you know, like I respect his time and his friends and, you know, that's that's why sure. we I think we were able to keep us together all these years to get through this. Um, no, it was him rearing his ugly head and just concerns that he's going through, you know, like some issues with depression, which he shared a little bit with his friends, but not not to where he really unveiled himself. No. We're going to jump forward to the next stage. He's weaned off of the Paxil. He's doing better with his alcohol use. You're having better interactions with him. He's having better interactions with you. He's having better interactions with the immediate family, yeah. including the in-laws. What's life like? At you know, this we're point? all human and we all have our hiccups and we all have are ebbs and flows, but they're not as profound. They're not as yes. low as they used to be. Like I could see the triggers when, you know, he goes out and he'll drink with some of his buddies, but he's mindful. He doesn't get into this deep bout of just oblivion. Um, but he gets a little melancholy, you know, he needs that support from me to talk to him and just to get him through it. So I think it's, it, you know, it, it's something that you just have to deal with every day and just, like I said, live in that green zone and um, and just try to make, you know, the environment around you a healthier environment, surrounding yourself with people that are mindful and respectful that, um, you know, you, you don't want to be stirring in that toxic environment. Um, so he has his hiccups, but definitely he's very connected 
with his sons, you know, now that they're young adults and he has a wonderful relationship with him. But I've also stepped up to the plate and um, I'm a tough cookie. Like I, you know, you have to raising boys, you have to have that regimented, you know, so we do have our ups and downs. There's, nobody's perfect. We don't have the perfect relationship. Anyone that says that are the first ones to probably end up getting divorced, but we really have come a long way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my ex-wife and I, we have six kids. Wow. We have five boys and one girl. She's the youngest. And we had twins with the second birth. So <laughs> I know all about those boys. All of my sons are adults, 21 and older. And my daughter, she's 14. She'll be 15 on Christmas this year. And so I'm just very interested in his, as far as you know, his conversations with them about his own mental health struggles or just mental health in general. Can you talk about yeah, that? Yeah, you know, he's been really candid and open. Um, and I think it's that vulnerability. And also, you know, he carried shame for many years. And when you have that shame and guilt, you want to suppress and, and hide behind it. Um, but he has really um, unveiled himself and uh, really has deep conversations with our sons, uh, which is, you know, really, okay. thank God, because, you know, it was a 50-50 shot. Maybe, yeah. you know, we would have not been together if he wouldn't have stepped up and wanted to make those changes. Okay. You are a certified, let's see, I lost my notes here, functional nutritional lifestyle practitioner, as well as a certified yes. Reiki practitioner. I did an interview recently with a gentleman and a lady who practiced Reiki. They're master Reiki practitioners. For you, what is Reiki? Yeah. Well, if you ask, yeah. if you ask my husband, he says Reiki the leaves. The cliff notes version. <laughs> but when I, he was a firm believer. Once I worked on him, he totally just melted, passed out for like an hour, and he said, "Oh my God, I just feel like there's clarity. I feel such peace and calmness. I'm like a vessel." So yeah. You know, yes, I'm, I was raised Roman Catholic and my very religious, no, but I believe in a God and I believe um, in faith. I my children all, you know, went through and was baptized, whatnot. But um, it's like energy that comes through all of us. And some of us, we all have it, but some of us knows how to open up and um, this energy taps into um, our body. And there's something called the Curlian theory, which is like energy, like infrared, like energy coming from our hands, from our bodies. Um, and when I work on people and everybody's different, um, I don't necessarily have to put my hands on someone. I could just hover over them and people are amazed. They're like, oh my gosh, I feel like there's like an iron, like like a heating pad over me when you are, you know, hovering over certain areas. And what happens to me, I'll give you a perfect quick example. I was working on a woman who I met once. All I knew that she was a widow. That's all. Didn't know where she lived, nothing. So I was working on her because she was one of my, um, she actually, after the Reiki, became one of my clients for health and wellness. And um I have visions. 
So I always tell people it's literally or figuratively. So you could take it as a symbol of you are now um, starting a new life. And I said, I, I feel like I see um, sort of like, it looks like a hardware store, but it looks like maybe like a two-car garage, well lit. But I see all these tools in perfect order. And I said, you know, it looks like maybe somebody's into like, woodworking or something, but you could take that for, you know, you're, you're getting tools now to live, um, in the new lifestyle without your husband, you know, well, when I'm, when I was done, she was like, she had goosebumps. She said, you know, my husband was an avid woodworker, loved working on furniture and was very meticulous. And he gutted our two car garage and had a shop in the back that was, um, so, so it's like a gift from God. I, I can't explain it. So, and I'm not the Long Island medium or anything like that, but I don't, you know, I just, when people want me to work on them or they reach out to me, maybe they feel this energy that I have, I will work on people, but I don't really push that and promote that. Yeah. And one of the things that I bring to this podcast it's not just about triggers. Even though the title is Trigger Warning Talk Podcast, I don't like using the word, the words alternative therapy because to me, it's like a slap in the face to people and professionals like yourself. To me, it's akin to somebody calling me who's a fire medic, a paramedic and a mm -hmm. firefighter, ambulance driver. And I, my response is, I can pull out my wallet and show you every license and certifications, plural, that I have. And I guarantee you, if you find the word ambulance on one of them, I'll give you every credit card, every amount of money that's in my wallet. You can empty it out. And people are like, oh. So when I say alternative therapy, my apologies, what would you call it? Because no, I don't no. like that term. Yeah. When you're talking about Reiki. Yeah, we're talking absolutely. metaphysics. I mean, in alternative medicine, whatever you want to call it, you know, the people that are not believers, they call me, you know, like that because I have the validation of, of the things that I really can speak into. Um, some things you, it, you can't really, it's not, you know, there's a lot of gray areas. So the alternative methodologies, I, I don't get upset because the people that call it woo-woo, that disregard it, probably are in fear because they've never experienced how therapeutic it can be. So I just, you know, that's okay. It's not for them. And that's okay. There's a lot of people out there that are willing and want to have, you know, work done on them on a metaphysical level that um, I, I don't know of one person that has said, I don't feel anything or, you know, I, I've, I've gotten gratitude. I've gotten okay. People just saying, you know what, thank you. I just, I've never experienced this peace and calmness ever in my life. Um, and it's just, um, it's really a surreal feeling, but thank you. So. Yeah. Because this is your day job. Like this is what you do. You have a company, East West Functional Training, LLC. Tell yeah. So that. what, the way that um, this all came to be several years ago was, um, I was always passionate in bringing the Eastern and Western medicine together. You know, as much as I, I grew up with a, a grandmother from Italy that just showed me how to respect Mother Earth, to use herbs, 
um, incorporate that into my practice. Um, and also just eating seasonally, getting back to that. I also embrace the fact that if you have an acute illness, if you need surgery, you have a ruptured appendix, appendix, you know, something that needs to be addressed, then that's what we, we need that. We need the MDs in this world. But the beauty of what I do is I bridge that connection between the client or the patient and the MDs to really speak into what's going on with every individual human being and telling their story. Um, and, and that's the beauty of what I do. And I really embrace and empower people to create that balance and not just take a pill that will mask what's really going on underlying with issues that we can really address. I'm so glad you mentioned the medical part because for me, there was a situation over a year ago where a buddy of mine, he wanted to start a business and he was talking about alternative living in terms of having a plant-based lifestyle, having an alkaline-based lifestyle, putting your body in an alkalinic state. We had a discussion about that and I told him, you know, medicine has its place. As you stated, if your appendix ruptures, there's no green herbs and sea moss or anything that's going to fix that problem. You need yep. bright lights and cold steel to fix the burst appendix, yep. or you're going to die. So there may not even be any herbs or vitamins or supplements you can take to prevent having appendicitis. Medicine has its place. Now, that doesn't mean medicine is the end-all, be-all either. So this is where professionals like yourself come in and say, hey, I want to work with the medical doctor. Let's have a yes. meeting of the minds. You bring your, I'll bring my, and let's see how we can help this individual together jointly just like you see on the logo, all four of those topics are intertwined with each other because they they absolutely involve each other in some form or fashion. And we talk about how that is, why that is, in what ways that is. And so for you being a Reiki practitioner, what's a typical session? Typical session is I I ask people to, I have a table, that they could just, you know, they could, they're fully dressed. And sometimes I put a blanket over them. And um, I just try to tell them to relax. Some people, a Reiki practitioner wants to put on music, soothing music. Um, other people, you know, I will just say, now, I just want you after our session to drink a lot of water. Some people feel invigorated, ready to conquer the world and have bolt of energy. Other people might feel just real, just relaxed and mellow and maybe want to take a nap when you get home. Um, and, and it's okay because you're going to have emotions coming up. You might be laughing one minute, you might be crying one minute, you know, so just release and let go. Let your body just tell you 
what it needs to do. Um, and I'll work on them in different okay. areas of their body. And I usually follow the meridians where, you know, I, I might start on your right side, go all the way down to your feet and then go up the left side. Um, and, and they'll feel different sensations. And it's usually like an hour session. Um, and then I'll ask them to just call me later if they have any questions or they're feeling something. Um, and just keep hydrating because you're detoxing too, as crazy as it sounds, on a cellular level too when you have energy work done. The clients that you see, what typically would you say are their experiences in terms of why they're coming to see you? So we know you see people that experience domestic violence like you did. What other type of clients? Some of them are very have? compromised where, or they just had surgery, um, quite depressed because they were on crutches for months and had to rehab, slowly get back into the, you know, their new norm. Um, other people, they, um, they're just, their eating habits are poor. Um, I see all different age groups. There was a, a woman who was getting married but didn't want to follow the same path of her parents that were very compromised, that were diabetics at 45 years old, that didn't eat, that just didn't eat healthy. And she was quite overweight. She wanted to lose um, some weight before she brought a child into this world. And that's the thing, you know, I, I don't like saying diet. I, I say lifestyle changes and and emotional eaters too. So, you know, there's all a gamut, but this, you know, I, I started working on horses, uh, doing Reiki on horses cause I'm an avid equestrian. And that was amazing energy work where they just, their whole stature, they just, their heads drop and, um, and, and they love it. And I just find that their coat, they're, they're just, vibrating after I work on them. So um, that's kind of the way I got. Yeah, I know. That's, that's another, another show. show. But I thought I would that's share that. Yeah, so I do see we... on animals too. So. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. So you didn't share that with me when we did our pre-interview. No, that, that's all right. <laughs> we can always do a part two. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's, that's okay. That's, oh my God. Okay. My wife, Roll horses oh, wow. as a younger kid, and she had her own horse as a young kid. That's a whole. Not that's what I'm saying. See, that's gonna be a whole nother yeah. show we'll do. We'll talk about that later. Okay, I want you to tell us one last thing before you leave. And I'm telling Aww. you, I could talk to you all the time. Thank you. If Leslie were to write herself a letter or an email to her younger self. What would she say? Well, don't sweat the small stuff and go for your dreams. Never give up and don't let anybody stop you when you have that fire and passion in you. Just keep on moving and never give up. Give us your social media handle so I can have people reach out to you and all this information will be in the bottom Thank you. Of the yeah. Well, people can reach me on my Instagram and then through the Instagram, they'll see my website, but it's my company East West functional training. That is my Instagram 
handle. Uh, also, eastwestfunctionaltraining.com. Dot com. Leslie Dowling. Yeah. Love talking to you, lady. We're going to do another show just on the Reiki and the horses. I'm telling you that to me, it's just phenomenal. Maybe Mrs. LP will do that interview because she does the interview sometimes where she's supposed to. Yeah. Trying to get her to come on in or whatever. She's, she's doing her other things and stuff. So no problem. I want to thank you so much for joining us again. You're always welcome to come back. I want to wish you and your family peace and blessings forevermore. And again, continue believing in you and taking care of you. Thank, thank you, you very so much. much. And this was such a beautiful conversation. And likewise, I just feel the energy between us. And I could just keep talking to you and just having wonderful conversation. And thank you for what you do and all that you stand for. So you have a beautiful day and um, I'll speak to you soon, maybe on Clubhouse. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, we're definitely going to be talking. So I'll reach out to you after this interview okay. and just do a follow up and stuff. So again, Leslie Dowling, definitely check into her East West Functional Training LLC. I'll have all her contact information in the links and in the description. You too. Leslie, Take care. Have a great day. Bye bye. Leslie Dowling, folks, I'm telling you, we got to think outside of the box. Stop thinking about just Western medications because there's a lot of different options that are available. We're going to switch to our last topic, which is covering a missing person case. This missing person case, as we always do at the end of our show, focuses on a black and brown man, woman, a child. And what we want to do is I want to bring up the story here. I want to try to make the screen as big as I can. This is about three missing individuals. Three children. Violet Matori, Yolanda Williams, Sir Christopher Marshall. They vanished after a house fire in 1977. Still missing. Hey everyone, welcome to my channel and thank you to my new subscribers as well as my returning subscribers for joining me for another missing video. Today's case is an older one from 1977, but as I always say, I believe a case can still be solved no matter how old it is. There's always a possibility for new evidence to be found and for people who have information that they may have been holding onto for a very long time, um, it's never too late for them to come forward. It is absolutely pouring outside here in Indiana. So if you can hear it, I apologize if it's an annoying sound in the background, but right now is my only time I have to record. So there's nothing I can really do about it. I unfortunately can't control the weather. But with that being said, let's get into today's case. In the early morning hours of July 21st of 1977, a fire broke out in a home on the 300 block of East 131st Street in the Athens area near Compton, California. There had been five people inside the residence the evening before, but when the flames were put out, there was only one body found in the fire gutted home. 
A mother, 32-year-old Arlene Williams, was found deceased near the front entrance. But an autopsy would reveal that she hadn't been killed by the fire. She hadn't been overcome by smoke as she tried to escape. She had been strangled murdered, presumably before the fire was even set. Additionally alarming was the fact that her three daughters, 12-year-old Ivy Mattery, 9-year-old Violet Mattery, 7-year-old Yolanda Williams, as well as a 3-year-old neighbor boy named Sir Christopher Marshall that had been spending the night with them that evening, these kids were not found in the home. They weren't safely standing outside, away from the blaze. They hadn't ran for safety to a neighbor's home. Police went door to door in the neighborhood, likely hoping the kids had sought refuge with someone that lived close by, you know, when the fire started. But no one had seen the children since 11 p.m. the night before. Helicopter searches were done of the area, but these four little kids had disappeared with no trace. I want to note that I'm unsure why three-year-old Sir Christopher was at the home that evening. I believe he lived close by, so perhaps Arlene was babysitting him that night. I'm unsure. Reports just state that he was staying there as a guest that evening. The fire was ruled in arson and believed to have been set on a mattress in the children's bedroom. It had quickly engulfed the rest of the home. While investigating the scene, law enforcement found a trail of blood droplets going from an entry door of the home to an alleyway that went right alongside the home. The blood trail abruptly ended as if someone had jumped into a vehicle to likely get away from the scene. Now I'm going to go back just a little bit so maybe we can better understand possibly why this happened. Arlene Williams had recently left her husband, 52-year-old unemployed singer James Williams. James was the father of Arlene's youngest daughter, Yolanda, and stepfather to her two older daughters, Ivy and Violet, which she had from a previous relationship. The reason for Arlene and James's separation and impending divorce was because Arlene's 12-year-old daughter, Ivy, had accused James of essaying her in May of 1976. And thankfully, Arlene believed her daughter and rightfully booted James out of the house. She and Ivy had also pressed charges against James for the SA. And the day after the fire started at the home, which would have been the 21st, all three of Arlene's daughters were scheduled to testify against James in court. I believe Yolanda and Violet had witnessed James attacking their sister Ivy, and that's why they were going to testify alongside her. So because of all this that had been going on, the SA charges against him, the impending court date, of course, police immediately looked at James as possibly being responsible because he would have had a motive. And how convenient for him that his estranged wife is murdered and four children disappear the day that they were going to tell the courts what he had done to Ivy. Now, James denied any involvement in Arlene's murder when interviewed by police and claimed to have no knowledge of who killed his wife or where the four children could be. He said he had not seen the girls in a few weeks because of he and his wife's separation and that he had been on the road driving to Bakersfield, California in search of a job at the time of the fire. He claimed his car had broken down, so he had slept in his vehicle on the side of the road that night, two hours away from Compton. Police did notice when they were talking to him that James had a severe injury to his hand. It was a pretty bad cut. 
Remember that trail of blood police discovered going from Arlene's house to the alley? Well, James said he had sliced his hand open, just sliced it wide open on a faulty jack while trying to fix his car. I know DNA testing wasn't yet available in 1977, but they could test blood type. The only thing I could find on that concerning the blood trail and the cut on James's hand was a news article stating that detectives had linked the blood trail to the cut on James's hand and that lab tests were pending. Nothing else was ever released as far as I could find. A waitress did come forward to tell police that she had seen Ivy, Violet, Yolanda, and Sir Christopher with James at a coffee shop in Kern County, California, several hours after the fire. Some articles say it was at a Denny's restaurant, but newspaper articles say it was a coffee shop. Could be the same thing, I guess. This sighting couldn't be confirmed, though, as I'm sure the restaurant didn't have cameras back in 1977. A friend or friends of James came forward stating that they had picked him up in Bakersfield later in the day on the 21st, but he was alone. The children were not with him. James was released by police after being questioned, but was arrested at a friend's home the very next day when Arlene's autopsy results came back, showing that she hadn't died because of the fire, but her death was in fact a homicide. In August of 1977, despite his claims of innocence, James Williams was charged with Arlene's murder, as well as being charged in the death of the four children, even though their bodies had not been found. The prosecutor in the case had a theory that James had murdered all five of them, Arlene and the four children, in an attempt to avoid a conviction in the essay charge. James was tried for the murders two times, both times ended with a jury being deadlocked. In July of 1979, the murder charges against James were dismissed and no third trial ever took place. I'm unsure why they thought prosecuting him for all five murders together was the way to go. I am far from an expert on the court system and how all that works, but they had Arlene's body. Her autopsy proved she was murdered. I feel like they could have gotten a conviction in her murder at the very least, and then perhaps tried him for the murder of the kids separately, but they didn't. So that's likely why it ended up being declared a mistrial. They didn't have the bodies of the children and couldn't prove that he had murdered them or that they were even dead. James Williams is now deceased. And as far as we know, he never told anybody, you know, what he did, if it was him. In 2014, Ivy's skeletal remains were found in Corona, California, about an hour away from Compton, but her remains were identified until several years later. If a cause of death was able to be determined, it was not released. And I'm unsure if they searched that area to see if maybe the remains of the other children were there as well. I'm assuming they did, but could not find a search reported or even any details of exactly how or where Ivy's remains were located. In my opinion, I feel like it would have been difficult for one man to pull this off all on his own. I do believe James Williams was responsible, but I feel like he would have needed help. I believe someone out there assisted him or at least knew or knows what he did and where he took the kids. 
I am interested to know if they saved a sample from the blood trail leading away from the house, if it could still be tested today, even though James Williams is now dead and, you know, maybe they could still match it to him or discover that that blood was a match to someone else. Maybe someone else was involved entirely, or maybe it was an accomplice that was with James that night. I just feel like if they could test it now, it could give them a lot more answers or at least some closure for the family that is remaining. I also wonder how James, if it was him, was able to get all four of the children to go with him. Even if the younger three were willing to go, I find it highly unlikely that Ivy would have been willing to leave with someone who had allegedly essayed her, unless he also killed the children in the house, then transported their bodies. But then why wouldn't he leave their bodies there with Arlene's? Also, there's the sighting of him with the children at the coffee shop or Denny's um, after the fire took place. But if he planned to murder the kids, why stop at a restaurant to get them food? Why risk being seen out in public with them. It could be possible that Ivy was the only one he intended to get rid of, so he gave the others away unharmed, but Yolanda and Violet were old enough to tell people what had happened and remember their past. Sir Christopher was only three, so he could easily have been given to someone and raised, you know, have a whole new life and not remember where he came from. Those girls, though, Yolanda and Violet, wouldn't they speak up if taken somewhere or maybe if they knew their mom was dead and saw an opportunity to have a new life away from James, they would stay quiet? I know that's reaching maybe and it's likely they're no longer alive, but man, I hope they are and have had a better life now. I did read an article that stated that the mother of Sir Christopher supposedly believed that he had been placed at McLaren Hall's Children's Center before he was put into foster care and then later adopted. But I'm unsure why she thought this because there was no evidence to support it. But I guess anything is possible and she was likely holding on to any bit of hope that she could. If still alive, Violet Bobby Mattery would be 53 years old today. Yolanda Maria Williams would be 51 and Sir Christopher Clayton Marshall would be 47. The last time the children were seen, Violet was wearing a white t-shirt with writing on the front, blue jeans, and multicolored thong shoes. She stood five feet tall, weighing 115 pounds with black hair and brown eyes. Yolanda was last seen wearing a blue jumpsuit. She stood four feet tall and weighed 55 pounds. She also has black hair and brown eyes. Sir Christopher was seen dressed in a red and white striped t-shirt, brown jeans, a brown belt, and blue sneakers. He stood three feet tall and weighed 37 pounds. He has reddish brown curly hair and brown eyes. He has a four inch long scar on his back, a scar above his right eyebrow, and scar tissue on both of his feet and ankles. I know someone's probably going to mention it in the comments. I have no idea why Sir Christopher had so many scars on him. I don't know if he had been in an accident or what was going on. So, but I know I figured someone would probably mention it. So I just wanted to go ahead and say that. If you have any information on the whereabouts of Violet, Yolanda, or Sir Christopher, or information on what happened to Ivy, please contact the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office at 323 
890-5500. Thank you all so much for watching. As always, I mean no harm in doing these videos. I am simply trying to spread awareness on cases that need some exposure. If you haven't already, please make sure to click that subscribe button. It helps me to know that these cases are being seen and you can always come back and unsubscribe later if you wish. But of course, I hope you will stick with me and keep watching and help me to get these stories out there. I upload a new video every week and I would highly suggest checking out my entire missing playlist as each case is super important and each one of these people deserve to be found and their families deserve closure. Someone out there may know exactly what happened to Ivy, Violet, Yolanda, and Sir Christopher, perhaps even someone watching this video. So will you be the one who looks away or the one who does something about it? That's it for today. I'll see you all next week. Again, if you have any contact with any of those individuals, if you know of their whereabouts, if you know any information that can help find these three individuals who are adults now, this was back in 1977. Contact the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office at 323-890-5500. We will have the link to this story, the contact phone number for the LA County Sheriff's Office, as well as Leslie's contact information, all in the description. If you were triggered at any point of this podcast, there's specific numbers that are available in the description also. All this information will be available on audio and the video portion of this podcast. I want to thank you so much for joining the Trigger One and Talk podcast as we talk about triggering conversations. Unfiltered, uncensored, exchanging information, resources, and more importantly, dialogue. I'm LP. Until next time, 